Our passage for this morning is uh, Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 30. We'll be going through verse 11 of chapter 23. So we're in the last third of the book of Acts, which focuses on Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, and then his travels into Rome, and then the two years that he spends in Rome and Rome under house arrest, which is where the book of Acts actually ends. If you remember from the past few weeks, Paul is in Jerusalem and he's just been brutally attacked by the Jews, falsely accused by them, he's arrested by the Roman commander, and then he narrowly escaped being horrendously tortured and scourged by the Romans. Throughout the ordeal, we've seen how Paul has responded to this unjust persecution. I highlighted three of them last week. He didn't allow fear of the threat of persecution to deter him from his mission. He turned most of the situations into an opportunity to present the gospel, even times of persecution. And then lastly, he exercised his legal rights as a Roman citizen. If you remember, it was illegal to arrest, bind, and scourge a Roman citizen prior to him being found guilty through a trial. So Paul took advantage of that when he informed the Roman commander and the men who were getting ready to scourge him that he was a Roman citizen. In our passage today, Paul is still in Jerusalem and he's been given the opportunity to appear before the Sanhedrin at the request of the Roman commander. The Sanhedrin was... Probably the best way to describe it is the Supreme Court of Israel. It was made up of 70 or 71, 70 Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, and then possibly the chief priests, so maybe 71, but 70 or 71 is the number generally given for that. And again, it's sort of the highest ranking court in Israel. If you remember, the Roman commander had ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks and interrogated, the text says, scourged was the word that's used there. In other words, they were going to find out the reason why the, rule, why the Jews were railing against him. The commander had assumed Paul was guilty and in essence was going to beat a confession out of him. However, after learning he was a Roman citizen, the commander and his centurions immediately were fearful and put an end to it. And part of the reason for that is to violate a Roman citizen's rights like this, you could be executed yourself. And we saw that last week in the passage where the men were fearful because of how they had mistreated Paul by putting him in chains and then literally stretching him out right up until the moment of beginning to scourge him. And that led us to ultimately into verse 29 and then where we begin today in verse 30 where we read this. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews... The commander released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And so he gives Paul an opportunity now to go before the Sanhedrin and the commander says that he's doing it now to try to figure out what's really behind this. And so now that that he's discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen, he now wants to know for certain what really happened. He orders the Jewish ruling body to come together, the Sanhedrin, and then he even releases Paul, which means he let him out of the chains. He may very well have let him out of his holding room, if you will, and has freedom to move about. He's still in custody, but he's able to move about. He's got some freedoms now. And this is maybe the first time we begin to see this commander start to question whether or not Paul really was 
guilty. You begin to see him soften a little bit, maybe. As we look at our passage today, there's four things I want to pull out of it for us. It basically gives us an example of how Paul bore witness before a hostile audience. And I believe we can learn from that how we might respond to a hostile audience as well. Once again, I'm going to use some alliteration. It's not always my favorite thing, but sometimes it just works. We're going to see how Paul was confident before his accusers. He was contrite before them. He was clever. And then he was also courageous. We're going to look at that and see how those things might apply to us. So let's look at the first one. Paul was confident in the face of the hostility. Look at uh, 23 verse 1. It says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The first thing that strikes me about this is how Paul looks at them. It says that he looked intently at them. That means that he looked deliberately and directly at them. It's the same word that's actually used a few other times in Scripture. Remember when the apostles were staring up at Jesus as he was ascending? That's the same word that's used there. Just staring, focusing, looking intently at that. In fact, the angels had to kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, what are you dudes doing? You're staring up at the sky. Go about the business. Move on into Jerusalem. They were so focused on what they had seen, it captured their attention. It's used to describe how Stephen himself looked up into heaven when he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was looking intently, deliberately, directly into Jesus' eyes. James even uses it to describe how we're supposed to look into the word and obey it. He who looks intently at the word implies the idea of diving into it, paying attention to it, looking directly into it. Unfortunately, and maybe this is one of those times where I cross a line, far too many Christians offer the word a mere glance when we're supposed to look at it intently instead. And so that's how Luke describes Paul here. He looks directly and intently at his, at his accusers. That is a sign of confidence in Paul's case. He looks directly and deliberately at them. Another sign of Paul's confidence was that he appealed to the members of the Sanhedrin not as or I'm sorry, as an equal, not as a subordinate. And I think that's key as well. Look back at the second half of verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, as he begins to address them. Now, some would say that's simply a word that he is using because they're Jews, but it goes beyond that. You see, the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees, Pharisees, and elders within Israel. But Paul himself, we'll learn a little bit later, was not only a Pharisee, but he was a descendant of Pharisees, plural. It was part of his lineage. I believe that when Paul looks at these individuals, he's looking at them as equals, as fellow Pharisees. That shows confidence. In fact, we learn Galatians chapter 1, 4, that Paul had advanced, or I'm sorry, this is actually, I think, in verse 3, he had advanced in Jerusalem, or in Judaism, beyond many of his own peers. Paul happened to have been trained by Gamaliel, one of the most profound minds in Jewish history. He had every right, as he stood up there and addressed his fellow Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish elders, he had every bit of confidence 
because he was at least their equal, and I would suggest probably maybe even beyond many of them in terms of their understanding and education and the law and the things that they would challenge him on. You know, one of the things, one of my, every, every pastor, every preacher has his areas that he loves to study and you might call it his areas of specialty or, or whatnot. I have always loved the creationism discussion. I love um, discussing it. I love reading about it. I love engaging in it. And um, I, I love the whole Answers in Genesis thing. I've been down in the Creation Museum multiple times. I've been up to the Ark before. and um, That just, that just, just fascinates me. And um, I often find it um, refreshing when I see Christian scientists that when they get sort of rebuked by the world for being creationists, they don't back down. They show their credentials. And when you look at the list of the thousands of scientists that are associated with just one ministry, Answers in Genesis, and you see the letters after their name, they don't have to stand before some of these accusers and sort of cobble. Many of them are well-educated even beyond those who are challenging them and claiming that they're wrong or they're science deniers or anything else. If you think in history about the number of scientific um, things that have been discovered, it's been by Christian scientists. That is demonstrated throughout history. In fact, the backbone of science is built on Christian scientists throughout history. And so it's just refreshing to watch some of them stand up and to not be, not allow themselves to be ridiculed and abused. They've, they're confident in their credentials, confidence in their understanding of science. Probably even more so than many of those who challenge them. And it's refreshing. And so Paul here, he sees himself as an equal. Brethren, addresses them as equals. He had no reason to feel inferior to his accusers simply because they held a position of authority as the Sanhedrin. He had every right to see himself as their equal. I think the same holds true for us when we're being accused. No reason to see ourselves as inferior because of what we believe or what we think. Just because it may run contrary to the world. I don't feel inferior when somebody asks me, are you one of those creation weirdos? Yes. I'm more than willing to debate it with you. I shared with you quite a while ago a guy down at Dayton that I've been witnessing to who asked me outright that as we were going out for lunch one day. You kind of believe that, you know? We've got a standing invitation for him to join me down at the Creation Museum, something he said he's been willing to do, but waiting for him to recover from his knee surgery, so hopefully he'll take me up on it. A third and final sign of Paul's confidence was his appeal to his clear conscience. And this, I believe, is probably more important than the last two. Look at the the last portion of verse 1. He says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God right up until this day. Later in the trial before Felix, he says this, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he said, wrote, I thank God who I serve with a clear conscience, 
the way my forefathers did. All three of these passages, the one we read here, the one later in Acts before Felix, 2 Timothy, all three of those passages, Paul's primary concern is having a clear conscience before God and then before men. Some time ago I was confronting an acquaintance over something and he replied, but my conscience is clear. It was obvious he simply meant by that that he didn't personally feel any guilt about it. So I asked him, by what measure? Your conscience is clear what? Just because you don't feel bad? When Paul says that he had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience, he was able to say that because the, the measure that he used was God's standards, not his own. It wasn't that Paul didn't feel guilty. Paul wasn't even saying here that he was sinless. He'd be the first to say that he wasn't. We've got an example of that in Romans where he describes his own battle with sin. But to be able to live before God with a perfectly clear conscience means that he lived in accordance to God's commands, which means when you do sin, you what? You confess, you repent. And so it isn't about being sinless. It isn't about being perfect or guiltless in your own eyes, it's that you measure up to God's standards as he looks at you. And we have trouble sometimes with that. Oh, woe is me, I'm a worm. But when we live our lives in accordance to all of God's commands, even when we sin, when we deal with that sin appropriately, we can have a clear conscience before him. In fact, 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we sin, and John told us earlier, you will, you're a fool if you deny it. You call it, you're, you're a liar yourself. You make God out to be a liar. But when you sin, confess it. And Jesus will clean you off. So you can have a clear conscience before God. And so Paul, as he stands here before them, is able to say that I've lived my life with a clear conscience. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll start at verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Know what he means by there is using human standards to judge himself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is who? The Lord. So Paul basically says, I don't even use my own human standards to judge myself. Because what's most important to me is that I use the Lord's standards. The Lord is the one that examines me. So here he says he's able to be con- or we see that he's able to be confident before them because his conscience is perfectly good, perfectly clear regarding his relationship with God as he stands before them. So the first thing we see here is Paul's confidence as he stands before these accusers as he faces the hostility. So what's our takeaway? I would argue that when we face persecution, we should face it with the same kind of confidence that Paul does. 
Now, part of that is going to be dependent on whether or not your conscience is clear. But that ought to be the goal, that we ought to be able to stand before our accusers with confidence. We don't have to be ashamed. We should be able to look directly at them. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That's where our confidence comes from. When we are persecuted because of our faith, when we stand before those who are hostile towards us because of our faith, we shouldn't be ashamed. We should be confident. We're not second-class citizens. We not only have our God-given rights to preach the gospel and to believe what we believe, we've also, fortunately, here in this country, have constitutional rights. Paul took advantage of his Roman rights, so we should have the same confidence he did, not just as a preacher of the gospel, but as a Roman citizen. We should be able to do the same thing here ourselves. However, we should probably remember that most of all, to be confident in the face of our accusers requires that not so much that we be found innocent by men, but that our conscience is clear before the one who ultimately will judge us. So, confidence is the first thing. Confidence in the face of the hostile attacks of the enemy. What else do we see about Paul here? Well, I mentioned that he was also contrite. If you look at uh, verses 2 through 5 with me, let's read those. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? So Paul says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. David wrote in Psalm chapter 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, and you will not despise. If we allow that psalm to define for us what it means to have a contrite heart, it means that we recognize and experience remorse over our own sin, that we're willing to confess it, admit to it, and then we allow the Lord to create within us a clean and a steadfast heart to serve and to obey Him. That's what it means to have a contrite heart. Let me just read that for you again. If we look at that psalm, to have a contrite heart means that we recognize and experience remorse, over our own sin, we're willing to confess it, to admit it, and then we allow the Lord to create within us a clean heart and a steadfast spirit to serve and to obey Him going forward. I believe this is precisely what we see here in the Apostle Paul. Let's talk about Ananias for a second. What do we know about him? Well, he was high priest from approximately A.D. 47 to approximately A.D. 58 or 59. That's the time period we're in right now. He's obviously high priest here at the time that Paul is being tried. It's not really a trial here, but he's being... It's a hearing before the Sanhedrin. This Ananias was actually a supporter of Rome. It ultimately led to his assassination by an anti-Roman Jewish zealot in AD 66. He was known to favor Rome. That was something that many of the Jews despised about him. 
According to the historian Josephus, he had a reputation for being overly rude and disrespectful. The equivalent word would be insolent. He was also known to be quick-tempered. Think we see that here? I believe we do. Immediately after Paul simply opens his mouth and says, Brethren, I've got a clear conscience. Smack! Ananias orders the the guards, if you will, the men standing next to Paul, to punch him in the face. A little quick-tempered there. Paul hasn't said anything offensive yet. He hasn't made any accusations. He simply declared, I'm innocent. In my conscience before the Lord. Ananias didn't like that. Because he was rude disrespectful, ill-tempered. Paul's response to this is a little challenging to interpret. He certainly had the right to be angry. He had the right to call out the high priest for his unlawful behavior. We go back into the law, Leviticus chapter 19, we see that there were provisions against injustice in judgment. Judges were supposed to be held to an extremely high standard, much like we would expect of our own judges here. We don't get it that way, do we? I read a little bit about the individual, the woman that Biden has just nominated, if you will, um, to become the next Supreme Court, Court Justice. If you look at her history, she's had a number of things overturned because they were, she was overreaching appears to be much like an activist judge. When you have a judge whose rulings have to be overturned by a higher court that tells you something about the judge. So when Paul calls Ananias a whitewashed wall, that was actually a very accurate statement. A whitewashed wall was one that had been painted over to hide the fact that it was crumbling or in poor shape. It's like, you know, what was it, Palin that said put lipstick on a pig? You know? Painting a wall, make it look better, fresh coat of paint. When I was working in my bathroom, there was a gentleman that I, he's out of Canada, and had a lot of great tricks and stuff when it came to drywalling and stuff, and he used this phrase, I think it goes along the lines of, um, caulk and paint makes a carpenter what he ain't. <laughs> so Paul here calls Ananias a whitewashed wall, and that was accurate. Jesus actually used similar language when he was dealing with the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are whitewashed tombs, on which the outside appears beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So Paul was in good company when he called Ananias a whitewashed wall. It was an idiom describing hypocrisy. In this case, it aptly fit Ananias because he held the position of high priest. He was supposed to be a righteous judge, but he failed to obey the law and was bound, that he was bound to enforce. He had reached down and ordered that Paul be struck in defiance of the very law that he was supposed to be using to judge Paul. How would you like to be judged by a judge that makes up his own rules, doesn't follow the Constitution. So Paul was correct in declaring that God was going to strike down Ananias as well. You know why? Because he was assassinated a few years later. So Paul was accurate, you whitewashed wall. God's going to strike you down. 
problem is, if Paul was right, then why does he respond the way he does in verses 4 and 5? Let's reread those. But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. To revile means to insult or abuse someone. That's what these men accuse Paul of doing. You've just reviled, not given proper respect or dignity to the high priest. And Paul's response suggests that he unknowingly violated the law by speaking evil of one of the rulers of Israel. He claims he didn't know Ananias was the high priest. We don't know why he didn't know it here. Some have tried to argue that Paul was just being sarcastic, or, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. But that's reading something in the text, because we can't hear Paul's tone. I'm just going to take it at face value. One of the things I learned in, in hermeneutics is you take the simplest reading of a passage first. It's only when that passage is challenged by other things that you have to then look at it and reinterpret. So I'm going to take it at face value here that Paul says, I didn't know he was a high priest. Maybe he wasn't wearing all the fancy robes that he was supposed to. Maybe this thing came together really quick and he left them back home. I don't know. But Paul says he didn't know he was the high priest and then quotes the law. He says, I wasn't aware, brethren. But the law says that you're not supposed to speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it appears to me as I look at this that Paul is admitting that something in what he said was disrespectful to the high priest. I don't suspect it was what he said. I suspect it might have been the way that he said it. Or the audience that he said it in front of. You know, it's interesting how we're supposed to confront privately, not always publicly. There are times to confront publicly. But Paul, after getting struck rebukes this man publicly in front of the rest of the Sanhedrin, maybe did it with a very aggressive tone. We don't know for sure, but there's something in Paul's words here where he admits, and even quotes the passage that condemns him for what he did. It's an admission, I believe, of sin here. As much as we love to put Paul on a pedestal, he wasn't sinless, we're perfect. In fact, you want a good example of that? Read Romans chapter 7. Paul goes into a great deal about his own struggle with sin. But the thing that we learn about Paul is that while he wasn't perfect, he was contrite. He was willing to admit when he was wrong. He was admitting to, admitting to confess, or he was willing to confess that. It appears that Paul experienced some remorse here. He doesn't come right out and say, I'm sorry, but he did say, the law says not to do it. And gave them, again, the passage that they could use to condemn him. What's our takeaway in this as we see it? I think in the face of persecution, one of the things we need to do is learn to avoid sin and to develop a contrite heart. That's hard for us. When we're confronted, we become angry. We say things maybe that might be true, but we don't say them in the right way or at the right time or with the right attitude. It can come out at times of persecution and difficulty. One of the things that um, 
really was somewhat dismaying during the pandemic here was um, when we're in the thick of it, we naturally as conservatives in many respects have issues with the way that our government behaved. And sometimes the way that we responded was appropriate and sometimes it wasn't all that appropriate. Um, I have a friend of mine who, um, you guys all know, John Haller, maybe you don't all know him, but you know he, he does weekly broadcasts that get watched all over the world. Sometimes 20,000, 30,000 views before the day is done. And he made a comment one day when I was talking to him about how he has never seen as much vitriol come from Christians as what he was seeing in posts as they would accuse others who would disagree with them on this or that or in the way that they would talk. One of my real struggles is when I see Christians refer to, um, I'll say our enemies, I'll just say it that way, in um, very disparaging, um, I'll call it name-calling, you know, um, and they'll argue, well, Jesus called him a whitewash to him. I'm like, yeah, that's Jesus. You know, when Paul did it, what did he do? I should not have spoken evil. Doesn't mean we don't call people out. And this is where the line gets somewhat fuzzy. My point is this, that we need to be contrite when confronting. It doesn't mean that we don't confront. It doesn't mean that we aren't open and honest. But it means that we make sure that we don't sin in the process. And sometimes that's a little difficult to always figure out and to determine but even Jesus, when he, when he dealt with his accusers, did it in a way that reflected righteousness. And that's where we have to be careful sometimes. And I'll, uh, I'm snarky. You know, I post things on, on Facebook sometimes, and I've had to pull things down that I've posted going, no, oh, that just kind of crosses the line, you know. And I don't always know where that line is, but when we recognize it, we should be contrite. We should admit, ah, I shouldn't have responded that way. Maybe I was right in what I said, but maybe I didn't say it in the right way. Because again, who do we represent? Christ. And Paul, as he stood before Ananias, as Ananias struck him and Paul responded with what appears to be sin, Paul pulls back and admits that what he did wasn't appropriate. And again, not that what he said was wrong, but something else. Maybe, again, the way that he said it. Or that he said it the whole entire audience. I don't know. So a contrite heart. We see that throughout Paul's persecution here. We see it all the way as he goes to Rome. This contrite heart. Let's move on to the third thing. We find that Paul was clever as well. I love this one. Look at verses 6 through 10 with me. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel spoke to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. What do we have going on here? Did you catch what Paul actually did here? 
he's looking around and he sees that, okay, there's Pharisees on this side, there's some Sadducees on this side, maybe in the back there's some other elders and scribes sitting back, there's some of the the, the leaders of, of Israel, and they all have different opinions on resurrection from the dead. You see, the Pharisees believed in life after death. They believed in a resurrection. They also believed in angelic beings like spirits and angel, or angels and demons and that. The Sadducees, however, rejected all of those things. So the question is, why would Paul do what he did? He knew these parties well enough to know that they would begin to argue among themselves and debate it among themselves. I think he also probably hoped, and this is my opinion, the Pharisees generally outnumbered the Sadducees. And Paul had been a Pharisee. And in this particular topic of the resurrection, they aligned with Paul. And it may have been that Paul was trying to garner some support among the Pharisees in this particular group because they would have had the loudest voices at this time again because they generally outnumbered the Sadducees. And so Paul, as he's looking at that, is looking for some support. What can he do to cause some in that setting to see his side? And so that's what he does. And we actually see that both of those things happen because they do start to debate among themselves and some of the, the, the Pharisees now actually get up and start saying, we don't see anything wrong with Paul, but they go even further and they say, oh... Maybe he really did see something on the road to Damascus. This is a brilliant move. It's clever on Paul's behalf. The other thing that we have to kind of look at is that, remember, they had kind of come to him with two things. They were trying to make Paul an enemy of Rome and an enemy of the Jews. But this was really about one thing only. A difference of opinion on one main topic. Resurrection. The Jews weren't happy that Paul was preaching resurrection in a Savior, Jesus Christ. That was the real issue. We'll begin to see how this unfolds and falls apart because by the time he gets to Festus, or Felix, Festus, and then even King Agrippa later on in in, um, Acts, they've pretty much just written it off as, this is just a debate among Jews has nothing to do. They've already pretty much, Festus, the governor, pretty much is like, he's done nothing against Rome. He tells that to the king Agrippa, and when Paul appeals to Caesar, he's like, I got nothing. He wants to go see the emperor. I got nothing I can send him to the emperor with. He's not broken any Roman laws. This is purely about one thing, a debate among Jews. Paul, by doing this, reminds this whole body that this is about one thing, a debate over theology. It isn't about Roman law. And the commander who's sitting by watching this now sees them all start to bicker and fight among themselves, realizes this is about religion. This isn't a legal matter. This is about religion. And so Paul is clever here in the way that he handles this. This dude is standing before 70 some odd people plus a bunch of Romans probably, maybe even some some Jews that are watching. Doesn't have a lawyer to represent him, but he is brilliant and clever in how he handles it. You know, it's interesting because recently 
the Supreme Court ruled on Biden's mandate to force companies over 100 with over 100 employees to vaccinate their employees or have their employees vaccinated or potentially lose their employment. What's interesting is what the Supreme Court did and some of the evidence they used. There was a leaked audio tape when Biden's own administration got together and brought their attorney into the room and debated, how are we going to accomplish this? The attorney is caught on tape actually saying that the president doesn't have the legal authority to do this and that using OSHA as a workaround and that they didn't even know if that would stand. And one of the justices at the Supreme Court brought that up. In essence said, you guys are arguing among yourselves and can't get it right. They probably would have ruled against it on other matters too, but it was interesting listening to them sort of do almost like what Paul did. Paul let them argue among themselves and show that this is really about religion. And the Supreme Court justice that mentioned this showed that this is a workaround. Your own words, your own people have condemned yourselves by saying what this really is. It's a workaround. You don't have the authority. OSHA doesn't have the authority. Your own people have said that. And that's in some respects what happens here where the commander is able to look at this and go, this is a matter of religion. And so what's our takeaway? You're probably familiar with Jesus' command to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. It's from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. It reads this way, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Snakes or serpents in any, or many ancient cultures were symbols of cleverness and wisdom because they know how to exist in the grass among predators. They're able to hide and move around and detect and evade. They're able to move around without drawing attention to themselves. So because Jesus sent us out of the world as sheep among wolves, we need to be clever and wise, just like snakes, knowing how to live, how to exist, how to move about in a world that is filled with our enemies, all those who wish to do us harm. So we have to be clever about the way that we do it. You know, one of the things, as much as I hate wearing the masks and all the debates over whether they work and whether they don't work, I have my, own, I have my opinions, but my position on it was, I'm going to wear a mask. Why? Because I thought it was clever. I don't want to give them one other reason to hate me. So you know what? The building says wear a mask. I walk in and I wear a mask. I do that because I think it's clever. I'm not going to give them something else to hate me by. I've been watching this trucker convoy stuff and watching post after post where people are saying, look, we know that there will be some people out there trying to make us look bad. We don't want the Trump banners. We don't want the Don't Tread on Me banners. We don't want the, you know, the Let's Go Brandon banners. Not necessarily because they agree or disagree with those things, but they're saying, we don't want to give them any fodder. Let's not give them anything they can twist, because if there's one rebel flag in our convoy, that will be the picture that's on the news. That's all that anybody will see. Don't do it. Why? That's clever. And so when Jesus said that he sends us out as sheep among wolves, and that we need to be wise as serpents, that's exactly what he's describing. Be wise about what we do. Be clever. 
That's what Paul was doing here. In some respects, using the system, if you will, very cleverly to reveal what was really happening, what was really going on. What's interesting about Jesus' statement, if you go back, you can read this on your own, but Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 16 through 20. It matches the situation Paul is in right now. It's interesting, the parallel there. Let you read that on your own. So in the, first, in the face of persecution, like Paul, we also need to be wise like serpents and innocent like doves. So Paul was very clever in the way that he did things. That means sometimes we don't say things, sometimes we do say things. Sometimes we say things in a certain way, sometimes we don't say them in a certain way. We have to be very clever because we're dealing with our enemies here. Let's look at the very last thing. And that's that Paul was courageous. Look at verse 11. This isn't so much that Paul is courageous as Jesus telling him to be courageous, but we know that Paul was courageous, and it's moments like this that gave him the courage that he needed. And so Paul was courageous. Let's look at verse 11. But on that night, immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly testified or witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. A few weeks ago, we studied Acts chapter 21. And I referred to Paul as having courageous faith at that point. Remember the Holy Spirit had told him, Every city you go into, Paul, chains and bonds await you. He gets told that by the time he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to face persecution. In fact, when he's in Philippi, the prophet came down, took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and said, This is what's going to happen to you. The Jews are going to hand you over to the Romans. You are going to be persecuted, Paul. And Paul's response was, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be bound. I'm even ready to die at Jerusalem for the name and the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Paul was courageous, and it came from moments like this. You might remember, I asked that question, where does that courage come from? And this is the perfect example. It comes from the Lord himself. It's not something we conjure up. We don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and start using positive thoughts and talking positively to ourselves. Be courageous, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous. I think I can be courageous. You know, it reminds me of the, was it the lion in the Wizard of Oz? You know, holding his tail, you know. Look at what happens. There's four things that I want to draw out of the Lord's encouragement to Paul here. The first is that the Lord did not wait to encourage Paul. Notice it happened on the very next night. You might say that the Lord's encouragement was immediate for Paul. The second is that the Lord encouraged Paul with his presence. Notice the text here says that the Lord stood at his side. We don't know if that's literal or physical, I mean, like literal in a physical sense here, or if it's more metaphorical. What we do know is that Paul experienced the presence of the Lord. It may have been that the Lord stood right there next to Paul in the flesh, visibly before him. I'm not going to say that's not possible, because it is. But it could also just be metaphorical in the sense that through the power and the experience of the Holy Spirit, Paul experienced the presence of the Lord right there in the room with him. I don't think it matters which is which. Because the presence of the Lord is the presence of the Lord. And I'm sure that whether it was physical and Paul saw him, or it was just the overwhelming sense that the Lord was right there in the room with them, either way, Paul experienced the presence of the Lord. 
Boy, talk about encouragement. Some of you may have been there yourselves at times where you sensed through a difficult time the Lord's presence and knew that he was right there with you at that moment. I've shared this story many times that when Kimberly, when we were told that Kimberly had a very dire form of cancer, it turned out she didn't, but we went a week not knowing. And it was probably in, in, in the midst of that time of weeping and fear that I had, that Amy had, I have never quite felt that of the amount of peace that I felt at that moment too through that week. It was shocking as I look back at it and think, how in the world did I go through that period of time thinking that my daughter was not going to survive this? And yet I remember sitting there, I sent out emails every day, and I remember typing up those emails with encouragement and courage and just feeling that the Lord was right there at that moment. You know, I can't explain it. And that's what Jesus tells us. I'll give you peace that transcends your ability to understand. That comes from the Lord's presence. The third thing that we see from this here is that the Lord encouraged Paul by reminding him that he was fulfilling Christ's cause. Go back to that. Take courage. For just as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem... And so part of Paul's courage came from the fact that he realized and understood, I am commissioned by Christ and it is his cause. This will work out according to his purpose and his plan. Which leads to courage. The last thing that I want to pull out of this, the fourth and final piece is that the Lord encouraged Paul by revealing that his mission was not going to end in Jerusalem. Remember, the Lord had promised Paul that he was going to go all the way to Rome, that he would have opportunity to testify before governors and before kings. That hasn't happened yet. It will, because he goes on and he testifies before Felix, then he testifies before Festus, then he testifies before King Agrippa, and then he goes all the way to Nero's own house. And the many in the Praetorian Guard and even in Nero's own family become Christians because of Paul's testimony. That hasn't happened yet. And so part of the courage that Paul received here was because the Lord had told him, I'm not done with you yet. And so I look at all of this and is it any wonder why Paul was courageous? He says right here, you must witness for me at Rome, Paul. So what's our takeaway? And we'll wrap it up with this. I would argue this, that rarely in American history has it taken courage to be a Christian. Can I say that safely? Anybody disagree? I'm sure there are little moments here and there for individuals, but as a whole, in the United States, it really hasn't taken a whole lot of, Christ- or a whole lot of courage to be a Christian. In fact, when I was in seminary, I saw a thing posted on a board on the most respected um, professions in America, and right at the very top was pastor. You know what I just saw recently, just last week? I don't know if it was Pew or somebody else. Less than a third of Americans think that pastors provide wise counsel. Less than a third. That much has changed in 30 years. 
it's taking more and more courage to stand up and declare yourself to be a believer in Jesus Christ, especially when we get hate from any number of the positions that we hold or the doctrinal standards that we live by. So the takeaway for us is that it's time for us to be courageous. And it's a decision we have to make because, again, we haven't had to make that decision here because we really haven't had to be all that courageous. But it's now time we've got to make the choice. If you notice that what happens in verse 11 there is Jesus commands Paul to be courageous. Did you catch that? Take courage. I think he's saying that to us today. As we look around at what's happening in the United States and other parts of the world, we've seen persecution has been growing exponentially all over the world and right here at home. Jesus is saying to us, take courage. Take courage. Some of Paul's last words to the Corinthians were this. He says, stay alert. Stand firm in the faith. Show courage and be strong. I think those words would do us well. And the thing that we can be assured of is that just like the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ will stand with us just as he did with Paul. So, what do we see in Paul today? He was confident, he was contrite, he was clever, and he was courageous.